Welcome to the podcast, Speak Your Peace. This is a podcast about Utah's history. My name is Brad Westwood. I'm senior public historian at the Utah Department of Heritage and Arts. The past is never truly in the past. It's all around us. It informs us. It speaks to both our shared and to our separate identities. Speak Your Peace is a podcast where writers, historians, archaeologists, curators, all those who contribute to Utah's history share their insights and discoveries. When you're looking forward, planning for the future, first examine carefully the past. This is what this podcast strives to do for the many diverse and geographically varied communities across Utah. If there's one place, one podcast to get your Utah history fix, this is the place. Today's guest is Brendan Rensink. Hello, Brendan. Hi. How are you, friend? I'm great. Thanks for letting me come and chat. (laughs) So glad you're here. Brendan is Associate Director of the Charles Redd Center uh, for Western Studies at BYU and is Associate Professor of History at Brigham Young University. How many years has the Red Center been going? It's been such a staple in public history. Uh, we're coming up pretty soon on our 50-year anniversary. So uh, 2022 will be at 50 years. Uh, he has authored an award-winning book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in North American Borderlands, published in 2018. Uh, he's the author, co-author, and co-editor of multiple books and articles, and he's the project manager and general editor for Intermountain Histories. Now, this is a digital public history project, which we want to focus on a great deal today. He also uh, is the uh, uh, producer of a number of podcasts. We'll also be discussing Writing Westward, Brendan's podcast that he hosts and produces. Brendan, your award-winning book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, has received a lot of interest in the historical community, Western, indigenous, borderland studies, American history in general. Give us the arc of your book. What are the main arguments? Share your, your highlights and maybe even a case study from your book. So it's a comparative borderlands book that looks at the experiences of two groups of Native peoples, uh, uh, one along the U.S.-Canada border and the other along the U.S.-Mexico border. So we're looking at both borders and uh, these groups were unique that they crossed into the United States, uh, some as laborers, uh, some as uh, immigrants for various reasons, and then there were waves of, that came as political refugees seeking protection and permanent settlement in the United States. So I compare their experiences in Mon- Montana and Arizona and how they're unique because they were indigenous to these regions broadly. So before the political boundaries that we are so... Mm-hmm. Yes, and even after the borders were established, they were crossing those borders, having a lot of experiences in what would become the United States and then in those territories and states. But as they came, they weren't categorized by the U.S. government as American Indians. They weren't given reservations. They didn't sign treaties. So there are these very unique groups in being, uh, I mean, as the book's titled, they're, they were native to these regions, but they were foreign Indians. So their experiences are very different than those that the U.S. government was dealing with as American Indians. And the presumption in the past related to these tribes was what? By the U.S. government? Uh, they presumed that they didn't, did not belong. They didn't belong here. So Even though their pattern of life brought them in and out uh, yes. across a much larger landscape. Yeah. And in some early years, the U.S. Uh, welcomed them. They were a positive economic force, and we encouraged them to cross. But as white settlement the settler colonial state expands into these territories, there's no, often no longer room for uh, wandering landless native peoples. And, and, so, and so by, by comparing those from the south as well from the north, what are the similarities or differences and what, 
What bears out in your writing? Yeah, strikingly, they come at various similar times, 1870s, 1880s, late 19th century. They often come for very similar reasons, for economics, for jobs. Later they come, you know, as I said, as political refugees fleeing violence. But uh, the group in Montana um, eventually does secure federal tribal recognition and a reservation in 1916. So after about 35 years, um, these are Crees and Chippewas. But the group in Arizona, Yaquis in Arizona, they don't receive a reservation and tribal recognition until 1978, so almost 100 years. So there is this, the, the biggest red flag I had at first was why this discrepancy in chronology when they shared so much context and why they were in the United States. You think the application would be the same to either tribe? Uh, I, th- I would have thought, yeah. Um, and we, what, what the book um, you know, lays out is that uh, Yaquis, one of the big reasons is that Yaquis came in with a set of labor skills. They were skilled miners, railroad workers, um, heavy industry. Integrated into the economy. Yes, these are all the things that Arizona explicitly wanted um, in order to build up the state. And so Yaqui laborers were prized laborers, which allowed them to integrate more, to set up semi-permanent communities. They often didn't own the land they lived on, but they were able to have homes and, and establish communities. Whereas Crees in Montana, they were buffalo hunters. They were semi-nomadic. They didn't have a set of labor skills that Montana was interested in. So, uh, But they also weren't given a reservation, which is what the United States had done with other Native peoples in Montana. And so they were left to wander landless, living in city garbage dumps, um, scrounging a really, it was some really horrific stories of how they tried to survive. But a lot of it came down to labor and what they were able to contribute or not contribute to the economy. Well, was it something about the cycle of labor, this um, soft we see with immigrant groups where, you know, we work really hard to get them in when needed. And then when economic things change, then somehow they're not wanted. Is Is that what happened in Arizona? Uh, and not so much in Arizona, Yaqui labor continues to be in high demand, even after the state is well established. Um, they're still, they then do, I mean, they're often blending in with larger Mexican American and Mexican immigrant so labor is, groups. Is that why they didn't get a, a reservation? Well, that's so kind of the federal it, government was concerned. That's kind of the cruel irony. Um, that those Crees in Montana, they, their poverty and their suffering was conspicuous. It was very visible. And so it got to a point where Montanans said, they just didn't want to see it on their doorstep anymore. So they, that was kind of one of the big reasons that finally pushed them to um, get them a reservation, to kind of put them out of sight, yeah, which is sad. sad in um, itself. It's not, it wasn't a great benefit. Yeah, but um, relatively speaking, Yaquis had a lot more success. They still had serious problems in, uh, in their communities that they were struggling with, but they'd had more economic success, relatively speaking, compared to the Crees. So uh, Arizonans were able to ignore them for much, much longer and ignore the very unique problems they had as an indigenous community, not just as another uh, immigrant community from Mexico, but as a, a unique native community. Tell me, as you have worked through the this argument and you've pulled a story together, which is not just a regional story, but it's a national story, what, how, does, how are we informed here in Utah with our tribes and our history here? Yeah, I think I've been going around doing a lot of speaking, um, in the United States, I've done a bunch of book talks in Europe as well, and trying to speak to broader communities. I mean, my book doesn't pl- take place uh, in Utah. It doesn't take place in Europe, and, but there's a lot for the, for people in Utah yeah. and elsewhere to learn. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things which I came a- away with after this project is realizing that there are, um, there are a lot of vul- vulnerable people um, 
uh, often domestic, often foreign, moving across borders, who don't fit into some of the predetermined models that we have for, say, in this case, what an immigrant is or looks like or what an indigenous person is or looks like. And these people, they didn't fit the molds. They didn't fit the policies we had. And so instead of carefully crafting new solutions for them, we ignored them or harassed them or deported them. And I think there's a lesson to be learned today that I I fear, I mean, I know there are people today, not just indigenous peoples, but there are people today falling through the cracks Mm -hmm. because they don't quite fit the model of the policies that we have in place for whatever these populations are, um, it often doesn't take much for us to think carefully about them and to provide tremendous help for them. Um, but you know, where there's a will, there's a way, but often there's not a will or there's just not awareness. So one thing I've been trying to do in talking about my book is to use this as a case study to show here's what happens when we are not careful. There is real human suffering. Um, and here's just the little bit that we can do, which can have such tremendous impact on helping these people who are may- maybe falling through the cracks then and, and today in Utah. Well, and, and thinking of our podcast, Speak Your Pieces, about public history and the ideas that somehow and always history can inform us and help us in the future. And so I think this, this book and the fact that you've gotten such um, – accolades. And let's see, what was the award that you received as well for this book? Um, the Western Writers of America awarded it um, the Spur Award for the best um, best historical nonfiction book, the best history book of the year, which was a real, it was, it was a surprise, but I was, I was very pleased. Well, and I think about uh, the interest in Europe. Tell me there, tell me how that happens. Uh, they, there's a real fascination in Europe Western with, love. with um, you know, Western history specifically, yeah. also with indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, but I also spoke at a couple of research centers that were border studies centers and uh, immigration and refugee studies research centers. Cause Europe is very, I mean, you can't go anywhere in Europe and not be that far from an international border. Yeah. Um, so that sense of, and so the borders these are different there. groups and communities yeah. living in relatively close geographical yeah. proximity to each other. Yeah. So my work intersects, uh, you know, Western indigenous, but also immigration border studies. There's a lot of uh, subfields that it intersects. And um, yeah, some of the international audience is talking about all those same issues, rarely about indigenous peoples, which is something I'm trying to bring to the table for them. Brendan, tell us the name of the book and how we can get a copy. Uh, Native but Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands. Uh, you can Google that uh, on Amazon uh, from the Texas A&M University Press website. There's a number of places to Any uh, book dealers that carry your book here, do you think? Always um, want to take an, care of our local book Yeah, dealers. I mean, as an academic uh, press title, um, it often prices out some of the local booksellers of the way that academic publishing works at the discounting of prices. A lot of local booksellers can't afford to carry they just, academic yeah, they, titles. It's a real shame. They don't make much money. Yeah. And access on the web and through the publisher's uh, website is probably the best way to go. Yeah. But any local bookstore can, and, and people have reached out to me and said, hey, yeah, I had my local bookstore order it for me. I mean, any local bookshop can order a book and, that's, um, and, and then they get some of that revenue. So you can still support local economies. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about uh, Intermountain History. It's a free mobile app and website providing historical information, interpretive stories about sites, events, institutions, people from around the Intermountain West. Uh, It talks about the Rocky Mountain. It involves the Great Basin and the Colorado Plateau. And it's just a fascinating website, uh, GIS-based. 
includes Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and of course, Utah. And it, what I love about it is the inclusion of photos, documentary videos, audio uh, interviews, oral histories, historical sources. It's both scholarly, but it speaks to this notion of public history, making it accessible. Tell me a little more about it and just how it all evolved. And I want our audience to get to it. So tell me the URL too. Yeah, they can find the website at intermountainhistories.org. And when you go to the website, you'll be greeted with a map that has a bunch of little pins placed on it. And, um, or um, on, you know, Apple iOS devices, you can go to the app store and search Intermountain Histories. And there's an Android uh, version of the app as well. It's a free app. And on the app also, you're greeted either with a list of stories or on the bottom, you can select a little map icon and look at the map. And um, each of the little pins that we see on the map are individual stories, kind of these little micro histories that have been written about something that happened at that place. And uh, it, if you're using it on your mobile device um, and you have location services enabled, it'll show where you are, a little blinking blue dot. And so you can look at the map and, you know, you could use it to walk around your town. proximity to these, uh, these yeah. stories. Yeah, you could do a walking tour as you're driving on a road trip. You know, open it up and see, oh, look, we're driving past uh, something interesting. And you can click on it and read about, you know, what happened nearby. And we're going to get to some of those tours. We're going to talk in a little more detail. Um, the framework, the model, what inspired you and what's the criteria for inclusion? Yeah, so I was interested in developing some kind of digital public history project for the Red Center. We wanted a way to try to interface good scholarly work with the public and make it accessible. Um, you know, as scholars, we think that what we're doing is incredibly important, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we think it's also important for the public, but we often struggle to... Connect with that public. Yes. Yeah, or to, to answer the questions that the public is asking. And that's a big part of public history, not what mm-hmm. me as a scholar thinks is important, but what does the public think is important and what can I provide there? Um, so there is this um, the software uh, platform called CurateEscape. Um, it was developed by the digital humanities um, people at Cleveland State University, and they provide it online for free. You can download the code and create a website on your own, or uh, there's a pay model where they'll do some of the work for you and then they'll d- develop the app for you. And I had been aware of this platform. Um, there was an Arizona project called Salt River Stories about the Phoenix Valley, and I'd come across this thing, and it looks a lot like our site. And then I had a fr- have a friend, um, Larry Sibola, who is at Eastern Washington University, and he runs one called Spokane Historical. And it's the same thing all about the history of kind of the Spokane Valley in Washington. And I thought, well, maybe that's a platform we should use. It's uh, attractive. It looks nice. It's easy to... Navigate. It has a good, yeah, easy to navigate, good user interface. And so I thought, well, let's do that. And let's do it, I thought, maybe just local, Utah. And I thought, no, let's Isn't expand this the to the— the Center to, is, includes all those states? Yeah, I mean. the intermountain regions of all of those states. So, you know, when we get a little too far east onto the plains of Montana and Wyoming, maybe that's not intermountain anymore. So we try to stay kind of within, you know, the mountain regions of these states. But, yeah, we decided let's— I want to do a full regional uh, project. And one of the benefits of that was, you know, the initial problem is how do I get content? How do I, uh, I don't have time to write 500 stories and, and populate this website. And so I thought, well, I'll make this a collaborative project and work with professors at universities all around the Intermountain West. And 
uh, have them work with their students to start writing stories. So my, my initial desire was to provide a public resource where the public can get some good history. And the way I was going to do that was by working, collaborating with professors who would then use it in their classes, having students do little research projects and write stories. What I thought was fascinating, Brendan, is you have a, a such a strong uh, academic structure to it with your advisors and your various uh, professors across the West, and yet they have got them to distill it down to uh, to make it a much more accessible history. Yeah, well, this is what became exciting. I've increasingly, I view it now more, I'm glad that the public benefits from it, but I think of it a lot of as a pedagogical tool. A lot of our students, they write you know, research papers and stuff for their professors, which is great, but very few of them get a chance to write for the public. And it is very different writing for your professor versus writing for your grandma, maybe, or anyone who opens up the site. And so it's a really good learning tool for students to have to think about academic questions, do good academic research, but then how do you translate it? Into, I mean, it's short, 300, 500 word mm-hmm. thing that tells an interesting story, has a good hook, shows us some big you know, large-scale context. And uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult writing assignment for a lot of these students, but it's a really good learning experience for them. And then uh, you're the editor and the, and the publisher, um, but tell me about your interaction with scholars across the West. Uh, with the professors that are collaborating? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've reached out, and I kind of continue to poke around and see who might want to come and play uh, with <laughs> us on the website. And um, a lot of professors are really excited. You know, they do offer this in... U.S. West classes, um, you know, state history classes, public history, environmental history. Um, I think we've had a women and gender studies class use it. You know, instead of doing another book review or another writing assignment, they use this and put this in the syllabus. It's a this, framework yeah. for uh, getting where they want to go yes. and doing it a way that uh, uh, publishes and gets it out there with a whole lot of other people. Yeah, and so these students the get to start building a digital presence, like a professional academic presence. So when someone Googles their name, you know, a future employer, they're not, maybe this will pop up instead of embarrassing photos of something they did in high school. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but the professors work with them. They go through a round of edits with them. Um, I require them to, you know, they don't just send and, and me rough drafts. That's the commitment uh, beyond uh, your office is they do the editing yeah. and, and it's not just a favor to you. They're working with their students. This is a pedagogical process. Yeah, everybody wins. In. Yeah. And then they send it to us and me and my team, we go through and some of the stories are ready to go and they don't take any editing from us. Some of them take a lot of editing. Um, these are being produced by undergraduate and graduate students at various levels. Mm-hmm. And so we want to have some sense of quality control, um, but there is, you know, varying, varying quality of stories, but we do um, quite a bit of editing. And then eventually we, every couple of weeks, I try to post a new batch. So I often have, like right now, I have a backlog of a lot of stories, but I try to put them out there slowly. So there's always something new on the site. And you launch that. Is it uh, based on end of semesters? Um, yeah. So at the end of the semester, these professors uh, start uploading stuff, sending stuff to me. Um, sometimes it takes them a while. You know, they're busy. They have grading to do and whatnot, but they get them to me. And then um, uh, now each semester I have a, um, a student a worker, a, a research and editorial assistant then takes that, does some light editing, uh, does kind of the data entry, uploading it to the back end of our website system, and then alerts me, you know, Professor Rensing, you know, these stories are ready to go, and then I go through and do a bunch more editing and eventually hit publish on them. 
So we're going to talk about tours in our next uh, segment of this episode. But um, tell me one or two stories just really gripping to you that's uh, lingered in your mind from yeah. Intermountain, uh, Intermountain Histories. And then tell us again the, how to get to it. And uh, how can you also find out and be told when new ones come up? Yeah. So the website is, you go there on the website or the app, you'll see that there are individual stories or sometimes, or you can click on something that says tours. And this is stories which have been uh, produced as a group. So they have a central theme or idea. So, you know, a tour about, um, you know, irrigation, uh, reclamation dam projects on the Snake River. And you can read a whole tour of eight stories all about irrigation on the Snake River. Um, But lots of them are just individual kind of one-off stories, you know, um, about sometimes very random topics. There's a lot about um, historic buildings, um, about um, sites of, uh, I mean, a- any kind of subfield or subtopic you can think of, we probably have a story about it somewhere pinned. Um, every once in a while, students come up with some, some very surprising ones. Um, uh, one of my uh, interns, I-, I run an internship as well with the project, and one of them did a whole tour recently that we just published last month all about... Um, the divorce industry in Reno, Nevada, um, oh, yeah, and how it became, became like the divorce capital of the world. Frank Sinatra's divorce, it, in yeah, he's on there. what is it, fifty-one yeah. or fifty-two, where he takes residency in Nevada, and all the uh, attention that goes there yeah. with him. Yeah, I mean, I, I I didn't see that coming. I don't remember how the student came on that topic, or uh, uh, a grad student from Northern Arizona University did a tour about sites related to science fiction movies that have been produced in the West. Um, so like a little bit of film and cinema history. Um, it was a lot of fun. Um, were they in, uh, centered around Utah? Uh, there were some in Arizona. One, I think Devil's Tower was one out in Wyoming. Maybe that's a bit into, far on the plains for my likes, but, um, but it, there's always just uh, fascinating things these students come up with. Well, what I find interesting about Intermountain Histories is just the how quick it can be ingested. You can, you know, get your history fix, uh, enjoy a story, uh, get taken into another source, uh, look at photos, um, just just kind of go as far as you want to go, but still get, uh, I think, something that's not just, uh, you know, antiquarian interest, but just interest that can associate with the present. Yeah. And the best, I mean, if people are interested, of course, go to the site and download the apps. But if they then follow the project on, we have a Facebook page and a Twitter feed. And every time we publish a new batch of stories, we always post there. We'll so that's that, the only way to kind of get notified of new things. We'll put that on our notes Perfect. online to, to let people know about that. Well, you've been listening to the podcast, Speak Your Peace, where writers, historians, and contributors to Utah history share their insights and, and discoveries. Today's guest has been Brendan Rensink. Uh, associate professor of history at BYU and direct or associate director of the Charles Red Center of Western Studies. Speaker pieces recorded and engineered in Studio Underground here in Salt Lake City, and I thank Connor Sorensen from Studio Underground, who is our sound engineer and post production editor. Thank you so much for joining me in this segment. I really appreciate your time, Brendan. We're going to dig in a little deeper in our next section. We're going to talk a little bit more about Intermountain Histories. Before we close this segment, uh, Brendan, tell us some of your most recent personal interest and research. What is going on in your historian mind of late? Uh, I'm wrapping up a book of essays about the 21st century West. 
um, that I hosted a seminar and brought in a bunch of scholars, each who wrote a, a kind of a, a book chapter length essay about the West, but that was pulling modern histories all the way into the 21st century. So um, I'm wrapping up edits on that and we'll be sending it off to uh, University of Nebraska Press. And that should come out, uh, I think, summer of 2021 or fall of 2021. So is there a thread that runs through this book and what's the, what's the, the arc of these stories? Yeah, I, the idea is that back in the 80s and 90s, there was a big movement in Western history. We called, we called it the new Western history. Mm-hmm. And one of the pieces of that is that a lot of people are saying the West didn't cease to exist as a region we're studying, you know, in 1890 when the frontier closed. Like there is a modern West. There's unique things that have happened in the 20th century. And so there was this explosion of modern West scholarship uh, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and I realized that a lot of those, and there were, there were conferences, anthologies, there's mm-hmm. all these discussions. Um, but a lot of those discussions are now 30 or 40 years old. Not so new. Right. We're, we're two full decades into the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And so I brought together a group of scholars, and the central organizing question was, you know, they each took something from, you know, maybe the 80s or 90s, a topic of the late 20th century, and pulled it as fo- close to the present as possible, trying to show us, here's what has, how it's developed uniquely in the 21st century. Here's what's different about the last about this century as opposed to the late 20th century. And sometimes they're showing that it hasn't changed. It's a a continuation of what we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. Um, But many of them were showing how things are evolving quite differently in the 21st century. So it's going to be a fun volume. Wonderful. Well, uh, everyone, thanks so much for listening to Speak Your Peace. This is a podcast about Utah's history and particularly about how history can be made accessible, the most important history to those who are interested in Utah's history hope you'll come back for the second segment of this uh, of this episode i'm brad westwood and thank you for joining us speak your peace <laughs>